Welcome to another episode of Hollowed Waters Podcast. Um, hope you've been enjoying them. We just did a couple of really great ones with uh, Paul Weimer, um, the dry fly master from Montana. We uh, just did one with uh, uh, Tommy Lynch, who's the mousing maestro of the night, the night stalker. Uh, we had the pleasure yesterday of doing one with uh, the streamer guru, Kelly Gallup. Um, the Galvanting Men. And then we have a great one coming up today. Uh, it's another episode of our Big Big Trout, Big Brown Trout Hunter series. Uh, this one is the uh, complete Big Trout Hunter, the mastery and talent of the one and only Landon Meyer. And uh, this is going to be a great one. So stay tuned, take notes. Um, uh, you know, at Hollow Waters Podcast, it is part of the Hollow Waters Journal, the new magazine journal that we started. Um, I, we promise you to bring you the pure, great heart and soul and passion for fly fishing, for trout, salmon, and steelhead as it was meant to be. Um, it, and we're edged deep into that whole spirit of creativity and the techniques and the flies of all the talented, great people out there. And there's so many of them. Uh, these are the gurus that, that, you know, have so much to offer everybody and, um, it's such an honor doing these things because I'm learning so much and, and uh, there's so much out there. So, so please absorb as much as you can listen as much as you can read books as much as you can, because that's what our whole experience is about. When I look back in my growing days and everybody we read and read and, and it's just, it's just such a wonderful, deep, fascinating sport. And sometimes we only tip the iceberg on it. And, uh, and we promise you to bring you all these things. So uh, without further ado, um, May I introduce the the great gallivanting trout troubadour of the Rockies, the the maestro of the meniscus and manusha, the Signore El Skinny of the trout sight fishing splendor. This is a guide and author that is a was a big trout in in a former reincarnated Buddha life. I mean, this dude is switched on, and the one and only. Landon Meyer is here today with us, and I am so honored to have you. How are you, Landon? <laughs> wow, man, I am. Um, I'm doing great. I'm having a having a good summer, and it is truly a pleasure and an honor to work with you again, Matt, and and be on the podcast and share the passion, drive, and addiction and madness that we all know as brown trout. <laughs> God bless you. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, you know, there just can't be enough verb about everything that we do. And we just, you know, looking at all your beautiful books, which we're going to get in depth with and talk about, uh, Landon, and your guiding schedule, uh, you are just, uh, you're everywhere and your energy level is extremely high. Um, I just, I just see you bouncing all over the place and you're just, you just, you just never quit. Where do you, where do you get all your energy from, man? I mean, are you like, are you like whacking uh, Red Bulls and uh, monsters every half hour or is it just. Don't be fooled all the time. Just love shining down from heaven. <laughs> exactly. Some days I question, is it how, how safe am I if I'm doing my third Red Bull? <laughs> what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? I, you know, I just, I'm like you and, and the other greats that you mentioned in the uh, podcast, other really good people, great trout hunters. I just love it, man. It still consumes me. And I'm just thankful I have this passion and drive every day. And I remember when I was young, the biggest thing for me that stuck with me in my, my early years and even in middle school, getting ready to go into high school was all the people that we're willing to give me the information that makes it so important for me to do the same for others. So, man, it's 
It's just in the blood, but don't be fooled. That coffee and Red Bull kick is happening. <laughs> Way to go, man. I'm, I'm on, I'm these, uh, I think I'm on my third cup of coffee and uh, <laughs> yeah, God exactly. bless America. It's awesome yeah. stuff. So, um, you know, growing up your, your early days, you know, the, I mean, we want to really get down deep with, with Len and Meyer here. What, yeah. um, how did you get involved in fly fishing? How'd you get involved fishing? Cause a lot of us were worm dunkers like me and, and, you know, we, then we got into the fly gig and, how did you, where did, where did this all start for Landon? Where did that whole dynasty start? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. I was talking with my kiddos about this in, uh, in the winter season. And for me, it was, when I was younger, I did. I threw some rooster tails and some cast masters and used to go up and hit a love mile reservoir and occasionally go to the river. And the turning point for me was in 11 mile canyon when I was up there one day and I watched these guys that were just connecting with fish right and left making these awesome casts, you know, bugs were all over the place. And from there, we had a good friend of ours, Jim, that was guiding part-time with the Angler's Cubby. And he mentioned going up to Decker's and he took me up one day. And ever since that moment with the family, man, we've just enjoyed getting out and, and hitting some different waters. But that really was a key point for me. It sticks with me. And I'm thankful and grateful because I can take my son River and our other kiddos and teach them in 11 Mile Canyon. That's where I that's where I cut my teeth and fly fishing and then kind of progressed in the South park and other locations. So really, really fun to have that experience. It's a beautiful place, man. Just great hatches, wonderful fish, wild brown trout, a lot of fun. That is awesome. How old are your, are your young ones? Uh, yeah, yeah. Not so young anymore. So 10, 17, 19 and 21. We have uh, our youngest daughters getting ready to start college here in a week or so. Where's she going to go? Where's she going? She's going local. She's going to do UCCS, the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Oh, that's so cool. Kind of after her dad, after her dad's path a little bit, born and raised in the Springs. It's a, it's an awesome location, an hour away from the, the great South Platte River. So I'm super stoked to have her near home. That is fantastic. That is wonderful. That is yeah. so beautiful. And um, so, you know, my first encounter uh, with uh, these guys, your, your legends out there was, was, um, was uh, Angle, uh, um, he wrote, yeah. you know him, the great guy, he comes to the fly fishing shows and I love him. He's just sort of like this, this sort of like hippie wannabe guru that's just like, <laughs> well, you know why, he, he's like the man. I could just see him in, in living in a small little cabin that his father built, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I keep telling him I'm taller than him. He doesn't believe me. I'm like, yeah, yeah you are. I didn't, I thought you were, I thought you were, you were shorter. I saw you, so you're like muscular and, and yeah. badass and cool. And I'm like, I'm walking by you. I'm like, wow, that's Landon. You know, you didn't strike me as that, but he wrote that tailwaters book and, and you're with, um, you, you do a lot of stuff with Pat, a wonderful guy. He contributed to yeah. Waters journal, Pat Dorsey. Um, how did that whole uh, relationship start up? It's crazy because with Ed, I, when I first started guiding 1997, Ed was there in addition to Phil Camera, Gary Tibbetts, just some really cool legends. And Phil Camera, you know, he's the godfather of synthetics with Larva Lace. And I'll never forget, <laughs> this is how I became friends with Ed. I, I walked up to Ed and I'm like, Ed, hey man, I got a question. I'm like, if you can give me one piece of advice before I start guiding full time that can help me out every year, I'm all ears, man. Please help me out. He goes, oh yeah, sure. No problem. He goes, if you like the fish, don't guide. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And look the minute at he said days. that, I'm like, oh, this guy's a character. <laughs> oh my God. And look at how many days you put in. And, oh, and yeah. now 20, geez, 25 years guiding. 
Um, 2023. 20, this is my 23rd year. Yeah. Years, Crazy. And, um, yeah. and you're still like going hardcore and you still probably fish on your days off, right? I do. I do. Somebody asked me that the other day, you know, that's a great question. I know you're the same and Kelly and, and Pat, the same thing with Pat Dorsey, really good friend, great person, great colleague. And the cool thing about Pat, myself and Ed is we all share time and we share time with clients that we all guide together on the South Platte. And we all have the belief of giving back and there's no competition outside of just the competition for trout and to make people better. And I mean, shoot, when I was younger, I was going to seminars with Pat Dorsey uh, as the speaker at my local TU club. So it's, it's just a really cool community. But somebody asked me that the other day. They said, how do, you, how do you maintain or how do you have that passion and drive? And I really don't know. I just understand that on the day off, if I'm not on the water, I truly feel like I'm missing out or I'm missing opportunities at other fish. So it's, I'm thankful to have that drive and motivation, but I know my body's not saying the same when I can't sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. And um, yeah. I'm just always fascinated. And you're, you, you, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about your books. We're going to talk about the articles you've written and, um, but you, you're just such a fishy dude. And um, you know, uh, you, 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 you have this great relationship with Jay Nichols and he, and he's a phenomenal editor. And uh, when I was writing uh, Selectivity and working with Jay, and he just kept talking about, you know, what a fishy dude you were. And uh, I think, Jay, you and him spent a lot of time together. What are, what are your personal attributes? I don't know. I'm going to get kind of weird. What's your zodiac sign? Um, you know, what, what are the things, the quirks that make you so good at what you do? I mean, does guiding come easy for you? Are you a people person? Um, yeah, you have that's a, a great question. Uh, from office, you know, like I'm a people person. <laughs> I'm a people person. Uh, what are you know? I'm, yeah. I'm I don't like people to be honest with you. And I was in, <laughs> I was in a hotel business for for uh, how many years? And I just dealt with thousands of people, and that's why I hate fly shows because there's just so <laughs> crazies running around there. So I just like shut yeah. people. But you got to make a living. And, and right. so are you really a people person? Are you a control freak? are you an expulsive guy or like I talked to Kelly, we did a podcast with him and he's so anal. I, I mean, I watch his YouTube videos and he's like, it's so bent out of shape if you put your bobbin or scissors in the wrong spot. And you know, he's such a wacky. And are, what kind of person are you when it comes to your, your regime of guiding and all that great stuff that keeps you organized? Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> I love that. It's, I'll, I'll, real quick before I dive into that, my, my buddy Eric Mondrag at one time, he took his friend up and they went to the slide in and went in to say hi to Kelly and Kelly was there and he's like, hey, you know, do you mind if I sit down and crank out a bug? And Kelly said, sure, no problem. He sits down and cranks the bug out and he grabs the scissors and cuts the wire with the top half of the scissors. <laughs> Kelly looks at him and goes, what are you doing, man? <laughs> and the poor guy's learning curve for cutting wires, like just helicopter it off. Don't even have to cut it. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I'm a Leo Virgo. I'm on the line. So I personally, I am a people person in some respect, but I'm like you as well. I'm, I'm kind of a homebody in the sense that I like to think about things at home, prepare for the next day and, and really make it what it is. I'm, I'm anal in, in this respect. I'm anal as angler when it comes to preparation so I do I do this system where I have an hour the night before and I get things prepared I always tie a dozen flies before the next day and then when I get up in the morning I'm thinking about the trip and visualizing the trip before it happens just like just like making a presentation to a fish before you even 
take the shot, make the cast, or swing the fly. I'm a believer in seeing the drift before you make one. It's the same thing for me getting out on the water, but I, I, I personally, when I go to shows and whatnot, I, I enjoy smaller groups. I'm not, I wasn't a, a public speaker when I first started, so I had to kind of learn that and get up like everybody else, all the rest of us with the nerves and the butterflies. But I'm definitely anal in the sense of, of preparation. Outside of that, I'm pretty easy going. I mean, I, what I do, Matt, every time I'm on the water, when somebody breaks a fish off or when somebody does something that causes you know, where you can't get the fish in the net or causes havoc and people get stressed out all the time. I just tell them, look, we all started at one spot, which was the beginning. We all had to learn this in a process. And, and here's the code I live by, man. I'm sure you can appreciate this too, teaching others on the water. This is, this is what I want on the tombstone. This is what I want to be remembered as. It's the trout that you land teach you something. The fish that you lose teach you everything. And I try to convey that message to clients so that way the day stays productive, it stays positive, and, and really I think that's the key, man, moving forward. That's brilliant. That's beautiful. Uh, you're Leo, so you got a birthday coming up here soon, don't you? Yeah, yeah, 20, 23rd, man. I'm August 23rd. My son's August 12th, and my daughter Madeline's August 29th. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God, that's so cool. My wife's uh, August. No, she's September uh, 29th, yeah. But okay. Libra, she's a Libra. You're a Leo, but I, I, I think I dated a lot of Libra, Libra, uh, Leo girls in the past, and yeah, for some reason they said Leo girls should not date of um, Aries guys, and those were <laughs> the horrific Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, Night of the Living Dead relationships, and they just never worked out for me. So. I think I right. found Libra and she's tolerated me for 30 years. <laughs> That's the word tolerated, right? <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to have to build a shrine. So my wife tells me. God bless us. So uh, <laughs> tell me, you know, so you, you've written countless articles, countless books. Uh, I've loved every one of them. I've, I've, I've read so much of your stuff. Um, Hunt for Giant Trout is such a beautiful book. 25 best places to catch brown trout. Uh, and rainbow trout and brook trout and every kind of trout uh, as being the trout hunter. Um, tell us a little bit about that book. And I remember you asked me to be contribute to it. And I was so built into doing selectivity that I couldn't even yeah. believe. And uh, I'm so sad that I didn't. I keep kicking myself in the head for that. But um, you just have so many cool dudes in it. Uh, Johnny Miller on the Delaware. And I was just talking to Johnny this morning because I found a, I found a, a tiny olive. This morning on the on the door of the Great Drake Lodge, and and I thought for sure it was a pseudo clean on Noka, and it was yeah. about a size twenty two olive. It looked just like a pseudo olive, but now yeah. they call it it, it was Wasame uh, or some new name. So whoever Isway yeah. came along, some guy and he peed on some pissed on some tree and decided to take pseudo away from it. So it's like all these new. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm so sick of that crap. Why don't you just name it what it is? Who cares if it's this way of on or pseudo clean? It's a freaking right. blueing olive, man. But you know, <laughs> it was different. And I sent a picture to Johnny and I said, this looks like a, a pseudo clean Anoka to me. It's about a size 22, size 24. And he says, no, nah, it's a heptagenia. Look at the legs. There's modeling on it. There's a hind wing. And we diagnosed it. Yeah, it was. But by the way, Johnny says hello. He's, he wanted to make okay. sure that, that I said to yeah. you hello. To, uh, he says, good. absolutely, but tell, man. But tell us about this book um, and, and how did you come up with the idea for it and all the great uh, stuff that you have in it. Tell us. No, I appreciate you bringing it up. And and then again, congratulations to you as well on your books and your articles and the work and reaching out to you, Matt, was a must do because I followed 
a lot of what you've done in your career and Kelly and all the great people out there, Tommy, it's, this is cool to connect and we all can work together and the hunt for giant trout, man. It's really uh, what I wanted to do with that book is I wanted to get inside the minds of predators that hunt predators. And I know that you and I deal with this, Kelly, Tommy, we all deal with the fact that in my opinion, large brown trout are almost like their own separate species of fish. They don't operate, they don't migrate, they don't feed as other trout do. And they become very territorial and aggressive. And the way that we have to think about it is to, to be honest, never stop thinking. I mean, the wheels are always turning, the brain's always spinning. And I know there's these really cool flies out there as well that people design for those trout. So that was the reason we wanted to put that book together. And it kind of stems off the first book I ever did with Tom Pirro, How to Catch the Biggest Trout of Your Life in Wild River Press. And since those days with Ross Purnell, Jay Nichols, John Randolph, all the great people that you know as well, just being able to connect with readers or connect with anglers through text was important. But that book, it's 25 locations. The other thing too is to remember, you don't always have to spend $10,000 and travel overseas. We have a ton of these giant fish in our own homeland and waters in the United States. And, you know, traveling abroad definitely makes you a better angler, but it's really cool that people have these opportunities and it could be their backyard and didn't realize that those giants are there. So it's 25 locations, 50 anglers attributed to the book from Tommy Lynch, Blaine Chocolate, Pat Dorsey, you name it. There's so many individuals and I'm so grateful because the one thing that you know and I know this none of this happens without the community of anglers and efforts from many people to make these books come together. And the other cool thing about this book, Matt, is that it has 37 flies and recipes. And a lot of these flies, you can't really find them in a commercial market. So maybe a bug that you've never thought about or you didn't see that you could crank out on your own and put that, you know, to work on the vice and then ultimately to work on your own home waters. So it was it was cool to put it together. And the books is you, man, and you and I both know this very well. Books are a love-hate relationship. Somebody asked me the other day, do you enjoy doing books? And I love starting the book. Halfway through, I hate the book. It's driving me nuts, consuming my life. And then when the book's out and it's in you know, the market, people's hands and they're reading it, you love the book again. So it's that, I think it's that roller coaster that maybe it's an addiction and passion, just like the sport of angling that I'm into. And yeah, hopefully I can continue doing some text and books and articles and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, you're just a great writer. Uh, what, was the, what was the biggest brown you ever caught in your lifetime? And what, how'd you stalk it? And what, was it a real you know, a, a spiritual moment for you? Was it like, holy, you know, how the hell did I catch this? What, you know, tell me about, tell, tell me about that big experience. Yeah, no, it was, it was, so it's, it actually stems back a little bit further. So it was this last fall was the largest brown trout ever landed. And it was, it was a female, awesome, really healthy, clean, fresh fish, you know, pre-spawn, thick body, just moved into the river system and it, it was measured. We measured it at 39 inches and in the high twenties, maybe 30 pounds. I didn't have a scale at the time with me. We did the measurements and figured the fish was ultimately the largest I've ever seen. What was unique about it though, is that the tributary, when we found these fish, what I've learned over the years, and this is what I used to never chase, but I do now is I chase flows. I chase water. So I, my goal ultimately with this fish was to get to one of the tributaries to the Great Lakes or any tributary, whether it be Michigan, New York, Ohio, it didn't matter where. I was just tracking weather. Whenever it started raining, 
and flows increased, I wanted to be there at the Great Lakes to find these fish that moved up steelhead, salmon, browns. And the flows went up into Lake Michigan. And I mean, they went up fast. Like it was within a window of two days, the flows were running in some of these rivers, very low, 100 CFS. All of a sudden, two days, they bumped up to 700. We took a flight out, myself and good friend, Zach Tokash, and we decided, hey, let's go hit it a couple days and see if we can find a window. First day we get there, chocolate milk, nothing going on. Couldn't find any fish. Second day, it kind of leveled out a little bit. And the one thing I always try to tell my clients for our local waters and browns is that I don't want to be there on the rise. I want to be there when it plateaus. And I want to be there in the fall. I want to be there when the waters, the fish settle into their zones, even if it's on the river's edge and we have a shot. So the second day we had that plateau where it just leveled out for one day from 700, leveled out about 750. And there wasn't a spike. There wasn't a bump. There wasn't a drop. And the fish were coming in, man, like it was like my first experience in upstate New York where there were backs of browns and salmon and steelhead coming up the river. I thought, oh, my gosh. So I ended up swinging in a couple spots. I was using the Mare's Mini Leech and the Mini Leech jig in larger sizes, like 8 through 12, and then swinging into some of these small little creases, these little buckets where the, the run's only 10 feet long and 5 feet wide, but the fish could be resting in there because they just came in the system right through a rapid or a riffle, and they stop in the deep runs or the tail out finally hook up on this fish and it's crazy because as I'm fighting this fish the violent head shakes you know that to me is what gets me man it's that head shake where you think you're going to get tennis elbow or carpal tunnel you're like man that is just too much torque on the arm and that fish came up spraying like a washing machine went nuts cartwheeled out of the water so when when it cartwheeled it was there was overhanging trees it was kind of dark and I seriously thought that I had one of the kings because there was, there were was some kings coming up. They were pretty fresh as well. And when I finally got close to the fish and Zach was there to help me net it, man, we realized that it wasn't a king. It was a brown. Like, it was one of the biggest browns I've ever seen. God. Finally get the fish in after this crazy battle and jagged rocks trying to run down the river, scraping up your knees. You know you blew your waders out at some point. <laughs> luckily, luckily get this thing in the net. But it started, that passion for me with the Great Lakes started back – in, in my 20s, when I spent nine years in upstate New York, chasing around in Pennsylvania and Ohio for the Steelhead and the Browns. Right. And then I was introduced to some of the tributaries in Michigan from a friend of mine, Phil Torellia. And once Phil and I took a trip up there, we noticed that I personally think the largest German Browns at the time, and those fish, now there's C. Forland Browns that are in there primarily, but the German Browns 10, 12 years ago were bigger than the fish we would see in Ontario or some of the other Great Lakes. So I realized that Michigan had the chance for some of the biggest fish, but that was to date my biggest and most, most incredible experience. And it was really cool because it was kind of near my, my home water settings where it was kind of tight quarters, a blown out river, really swollen, but intimate setting where you're only 20 feet away from the fish. And yeah, still gives me goosebumps, man. It was pretty cool. That is so cool, buddy. That is really uh, amazing stuff there. Yeah, I'm doing um, in the new issue, which I'd like you to be part of, I'm doing a piece called Sea for Ellens, and it's yeah. doing a documentary on Sea um, for Ellens around the world, uh, the Wisconsin ones. Of course, they're, the Bois Brule up in Wisconsin has a great run of Lake Run Browns up there that have been there for, geez, 125 years, and they, they run right. religiously in July. And you could yeah. get them on mice and streamers and dry flies on the hatches at night. Nice. I fished up there and uh, 
my buddies nice. in Iceland and, and in Europe and the Baltic where I fished as a little boy. Um, when I talked about it in Nexus, uh, living on the Baltic in Poland. And yeah, they're fascinating fish. Uh, they're, the migratory browns can be very snooty and they can be just garbage pig uh, eaters. They're just like, you know, they'll eat anything that comes their way. So uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to see you do that. Um, what, you know, when you start your book writings and articles and your photography, which is freaking awesome. And um, how did you start writing? What was, who, who, who taught you to write? Did it come natural? Did you take courses in it? Um, I got my start with Nick Lyons with Fly Fisherman back in the 80s. And he ripped apart my manuscript <laughs> into bloody red ink when I gave it to him. This is pre-internet days. And so everything was done on his old typewriter. And when he gave me the manuscript, it looked like uh, somebody just murdered a dead animal and there was just blood everywhere with his red <laughs> pen. But what, how did you get started? You know, what was your, who were your mentors? Did you learn a specific style? Did you, did you learn a template that, that makes you such a good writer? How did it all come about? Yeah, that's great. It, it's ironic too. And, and yeah, I've been there. My first article and first book, it was, it was like the red pen broke and just spilling ink everywhere. Like <laughs> if you have an ego, just throw it in the trash. Cause yeah. you're going to get crushed. <laughs> it's never happening. The, for me, it started in all honesty, the, the idea of how I was going to write and portray whatever I needed to in pages or, you know, imagery that all built up over the years, but it started with scientific anglers mastery series. And I started watching these VHS tapes when I was younger. I started learning to tie when I was 13 years old at the Angler's Covey. Gary Alameda taught me. My mom ended up buying that for me for my birthday present. And from that moment, they used to have the VHS tapes, you know, the Mastery Series with the yeah. Becks and uh, Doug Swisher. Gary and Borger. Gary Borger. Gary Borger, yep. Yeah. Gary Borger, Jack Dennis, all of them. And my hero, my favorite that I used to watch was Doug Swisher. Yeah. And I used to watch that mastery series and how he would teach it. The microsecond wrist. You want to do the microsecond? I remember, I'll never forget yeah, those. He was, he was a and in fact, I, <laughs> it's so good. I, I used to watch them so much that when I returned the VHS tape to, uh, to the local shop, Jim Allman would call me. I'd be like, Landon, man, this thing doesn't play halfway through. It's like two weeks, you know, two weeks, a month late. I would rewind it, play it, rewind, play it to the point where I broke it. But what I found about Doug's teachings, which really stuck with me, is he, te he was teaching in thirds, so he would break it down one, two, three. And instead of overcomplicating things, he would simplify each step that he taught me through the VHS tape. And I went, man, that, that really stuck with me. And I went to every presentation, every seminar, and I tried to consume every bit of knowledge I possibly could. And at the time, when we didn't have the internet, we didn't have access to everybody. It was through books, it was through articles, and most importantly, shows. And with Doug moving forward, I just decided that when I got on the water, I wasn't going to complicate. I wanted to simplify things. And my break in, in being able to write articles really started with uh, Ross Purnell, Jay Nichols, and John Randolph. And my first, very first article was actually with Phil Monahan, an American angler. And I wrote a piece on narrow waters and, and fishing streamers. And after that, I met Jane, Ross, and Randolph at the show. That was your what first that? That was that your first piece, the one with Monahan? Yeah, that was my first, very first piece. Yep. And then I, after I, that, I worked with Phil uh, a lot at American Angler also, and I remember yeah. seeing that piece, and that was a really cool piece. And 
Phil yeah. was, Phil was a great um, editor at, at American England, and then it sort of went through, he left that and went through piece. But I definitely remember, because the next question I was going to ask you, when was your first piece? But that was the one, and I remember seeing it. That was the one, yeah. And he's, yeah, Phil's a good guy. He, he murdered my text. I mean, he, he said it back to me with red ink everywhere, and I appreciated him doing that. And, and Jay Nichols, and the thing I always tell people if they want to get started in this sport is I'm an angler first. I'm a writer second. I've, I've had to learn to write on my own. I don't have any teachings from this in school and outside of just trying to convey messages where I would, you know, send a paragraph in emails. And Jay Nichols is the one responsible for teaching me the pyramid effects, you know, how to break things down and how to have a catch at the beginning of each article or the beginning of each chapter, you know, give them the meat in one sentence and then build from there. And the template I have in the layout is is always based on the main focus like what is what am i trying to convey to the reader what what point message or information am i, am I trying to get across and then build around that so i didn't get lost and it really has from that moment forward worked in through through articles and through books and trials and tribulations and of course the magic of editing and people who don't make me look like a moron in pages <laughs> it really did it worked out well i mean getting the you message know, across the editors can make us look like that and we've all had our <laughs> work dealings and they could uh, really humble us very quickly when we think yeah, we're high and absolutely. high and all of a sudden we're like oh this stuff ain't that great so um yeah yeah so sure. that, that is so good to hear um yep. So, you know, you, you've done so many articles for Fly Fishing. You've been on cover. You're like the poster child. Jeez, every time I get another cover of Fly Fishing with your picture on it, I mean, God, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. Um, but you, I loved your last one on the migratory browns that I saw. And, and I, I did a little a blurb in there from my Nexus, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus book. But, um, yeah, I mean, Thank your you style of writing is so smooth awesome. and so cool. And uh, it, it's really good. Do do you do you sit down and have to be in a in a, a contemplative setting by a river to write, or do you just go to your laptop and start writing, or or do you get a writer's funk, as um, oh, yeah. Hemingway used to call it, a bad case of the black ass where he could not write, <laughs> and he'd just be in a funk for weeks, and he'd just go out and beat the crap out of he's got the marlin out there and everything and these billfish <laughs> and and drink uh, tremendous amounts of scotch like I used to. I switched actually to to the clearer version of my native land of vodka, Poland. But, um, <laughs> it expires me sometimes, and then you you write something. The next day, you rip it up, and you wake up, and you're like, "What the hell oh, yeah. do I do with this?" Do you have those funks? Do you have those periods where, like, "Geez, I really hate doing this," and how am I going to get through this? What What are you totally. doing? Yeah. What are your inspiration? I'm a I'm a exactly, I'm a whiskey guy. Okay. So I'm, I, it's the whiskey for me that really helps through some of the nights. Bourbon, but I'm, bourbon or Canadian? Uh, I like the bourbon. Okay, you're a good boy. Yep. You have to drink some yep. yellow. <laughs> yeah. Good. And I, you know, yeah. for me, honestly, Matt, and by the way, thanks for your help in that, that recent article on Migratory Browns. Just so you know, you were the only man. That, that piece would have never happened without your knowledge and insight because myself, Ross, everybody, we said, oh, yeah, there's nobody who knows brown trout better than Matt. And, yeah, they reached out to you, and that was the must-have in the article. So I appreciate you you doing that, and it was an honor to work with you, brother. It's, it's many more of these days to come. But, I, you know, when I get done with a trip, that's my favorite time to write is that evening. So when I'm, it's fresh on my mind, I'm on the water, I've learned something, I'm trying to convey the message and teach something to somebody else, and I get home, and the wheels are just spinning. And I'm a night owl. I love staying up late, cranking on things, and – 
you know, depending on how many drinks you have or how tired you are the next day you get up. And of course, man, I look at the text and go, yeah, there's no way that's going to fly. Got to rewrite that. <laughs> I got to reapproach that one. And, and it's always a deadline, right? They give you a deadline. And then one thing Jay told me, and I, I spoke to George Daniel about this when he started doing some of his books. And I realized George said something to me one time that stuck. He said, you know what I do is I write 500 words a day. And I went, oh, that's awesome. That's a great idea. I'm going to do 500 to 400 words a day, which really did help my writing because I, do, I wasn't overdoing it. I wasn't trying to just fluff or fill in at the end when I was tired. I could do 500 words. The challenge there is that it extended some of my deadlines. <laughs> so I'm sure Nichols and Purnell and everybody else are like, okay, that's not going to fly. You got to get this done faster. But I'm definitely, I, I think the evening hours, relaxing, afterwards the unwind is still thinking and for me, man, I, I don't know about you, but some of these days where I can't sleep, it still is like that. I mean, it's, it's a fear that you're not going to get more than three hours of sleep because you cannot stop thinking about what happened that day. Like it drives me and consumes my every thought. And I think the release for me is getting some of that down on paper and also through images too, just to make it, make it you know flow and make it smooth and make it make sense to the reader. But the goal is to just simplify everything. The simple details, in my opinion, is what makes you a better angler. And that's my goal for every chapter, for every page is just something simple, a detail, that light bulb that goes off for something you tweak that makes you better at what you were doing before after you consume it in the pages. Yeah, that is so, that is so cool. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break here, Landon and our listeners. And, uh, we're going to break and then come back with an email from a listener uh, about what we're talking about. But we're with uh, the great galvanting maestro of the Rocky Mountains, Landon Meyer, and uh, we will be back. Hey, listeners, in case you haven't noticed, I've been a big fan of Abel Reel since 2001 when my Steel of Dreams book came out. I've always been infatuated with Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon, thus my Nexus book. And I heard of Steve Abel's work a while back, who started in the aeronautics industry in the 80s in California. Uh, and when the industry slowed, uh, he switched to high-tech large arbor reels with the super series that revolutionized the market. Uh, I really feel the custom reel artistic finishes by some of my favorite artists like Derek DeYoung and Andrea Larco and Prosec are proudly displayed on a lot of my catches and some of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. Every Able product is one of a kind design anodized individually by hand in Camarillo, California, um, using proprietary artistic metallurgical process. Uh, graphics take anywhere from two to 14 hours for a single technician to complete. So they're pretty complex stuff, but they are amazing for the finest reels Made bar none, in my opinion, and also U.S. made. Go to Able Reels. Uh, it's an investment of a lifetime you'll probably forever cherish.
Okay, we're back, and uh, we are with Landon Meyer and Samantha Pinsky, the publisher editor of Hollywood Waters Journal. And uh, we're going to take an email from Kyle P. from Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And he asks, how would you describe the behavior of the big browns in your neck of the woods in the Rocky Mountains versus the East Coast versus Montana, also indigenous rainbows, and how are they different in their feeding and selectivity? Uh, Landon, any, any help with this? Okay, take it away, Landon. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things I ended up doing was in pursuing those fish in the Great Lakes and coming back to my home waters here in, in Colorado on the South Platte River and, you know, guiding in Alaska and all these different places, the connection for me with large browns is understanding and knowing that timing's everything. It's all about the migration. That's where, that's where it starts, in my opinion. A lot of these browns, I used to think I'd had to be there in the season when they would, you know, migrate to spawn, be there pre-spawn, be there post-spawn. When they're spawning, leave them alone. Obviously, they don't feed at that time. But I started realizing more and more that these browns are not just migrating for the spawn. A lot of these browns are migrating to feed, and they're insanely opportunistic. Even if they're independent fish, they could be aggressive in the evening, the early morning hours. So in addition to finding the migration, the connection I had with the West Coast and East Coast fisheries is trying to figure out the forage base of the food supply. Like, what are these fish coming up for? What times of year do they move? And the one common theme I found is that I always used to think we would deal with these fish a month, maybe a couple weeks before they migrated. And I realized in Colorado, for example, our browns migrate in late June, early July. That's when they first come into our systems and they're coming in for food in preparation for what's to come later in the fall. But the, the food supply could be mice in the evening, crayfish when the flows are high. It can be a hatch that they're fond of, whether it be caddis or calabatus on the still waters. So I start with the migration, understand when they're coming in. And the same for me was the situation I dealt with on the East Coast. A lot of those fish in the East Coast, instead of traveling up in November when half of those fish would be spawning, I started targeting these fish September and October. And that's when I found the largest fish, like the fish last year. That fish came up early in the season. So that's the connection, I think, with a lot of the browns and being West Coast and East Coast. And as far as the rainbows go, when you have fish that are that are known to be from a specific area or location and they're native or indigenous to that spot, a lot of those fish, I think, not only become selective in how they feed, but instead of relying on the hatch, those fish could say, you know, instead of eating a million bugs, they're going to be more fond of eating a crayfish or they're going to be more fond of eating sculpin. So I think dissecting where these fish live, what food supplies they prefer can really bring out the most and the largest fish. And a good example of that is on the South Platte River in Colorado. The biggest hatch that we see that produces large browns during the summer months, without question, are yellow sallies. Yellow sallies are the one food supply that, you know, crawling on the bottom, escaping up to the edge and breaking out of the shucks. These, these food supplies for the trout, it really does trigger them. And when they start buzzing around and you get sallies landing on the surface, whether you're swinging a nymph, whether you're dead drifting a twitch and a dry fly, that's what really does get the fish's fancy and turns them on. Yeah. And lastly, for all the fish that I started fishing to, East Coast, West Coast, Central, wherever it was, 
The reason I started designing flies was I realized one thing. It's always leech season. The one fly that stuck with me that I constantly use and produce day in and day out, doesn't matter where it is, East Coast, West Coast, is our leeches. And the reason for that is leeches can be found in high water, low water, dirty water, clear water, rivers and still waters alike. It's always leech season. And that really has been one of the focuses I've I've used for fly design and also fishing for some of the larger browns. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. And, and there's just so much, uh, there's just such a sexy action to, to bunny strips and marabou and leeches, everything, you know, there's us always, there's just, it just looks like food, no matter where you go, Terry Delphi, right. to, to the Southern tip of South America and these big browns yeah. in these rivers there and the, on the Maria Bejete and the Rio Grande and stuff. And, yeah. If you look at their guide flies, there's always some kind of leech motif. There's, it just looks, you know, it's, it's just a glorified nightcrawler. And we all yeah. know that big browns are suckers for nightcrawlers. I mean, <laughs> yeah. big browns kryptonite is nightcrawlers. And I think the biggest, the, the people that I go to bed at night having nightmares with, is the guy that just caught two 25 inch browns out of my pool in front of the lodge that I've been nurse feeding with a bottle from from a sack fry <laughs> with milk and then this guy comes along and 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 I'm seeing him sit there yeah and he's got a Jesus safe sticker on his boat and he's like saying uh well I think I got a couple fish and I don't think he even knew it and he holds up these two pets of mine and I'm like devastated for weeks. You're like my babies and these are my babies and I'm ready to oh I did, I I don't uh, even tell you what man. I said to him. I wasn't very happy. It wasn't, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't very kind. So I hope Jesus saves me because I was very a naughty boy. But, um, <laughs> you know, we have these nightmares about nightcrawlers and the guys in the Delaware are like, oh, these oh, nightcrawler yeah. guys, they come in there. So they are kryptonite. A nightcrawler is kryptonite for a big brown. They just love them. And, oh, and yeah. I always talk in, in, in my Nexus book about, you know, they evolved in the in the forests of, of Europe, in the dark forests, whereas a rainbow kryptonite for a rainbow is an egg and and oh, yes. in totally. the DNA they evolved 1.5 million years ago on the runs of, of salmon when the salmon came in the rainbows were always there rainbows when they see any oval object a marble they'll they'll eat it and the same yeah. with a brown anything squiggly yeah. and, and wiggling they're going <laughs> to eat it and it's just what happens but it's amazing yeah. how you, you you say that with the leeches um so yeah it is it is it is truly incredible what um let's talk a little bit about the types of water in the Rockies where you're guiding. I mean, you got tailwaters, you got true freestoners. I don't know if you have some spring creeks, I'm sure you do. You guide on lakes, you talk to about a lake, a lot of lake stuff. Um, mm-hmm. you know, tell us a little bit about the diversity of that water that you're guiding out there. Yeah, you hit it, you hit it right on the head. And and going back real quick to the night crawler, when I was a kid, we went up to Eleven Mile Reservoir. And I think it was, I was 10 years old. I'll never forget it. And this guy hooks into a giant brown, brings it in and, you know, lands the fish. And then afterwards he hooks this giant pike. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? I walked out to him like, what are you catching those on? He goes, he goes, son, I'm inflating night crawlers. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Literally injecting night crawlers. So they float off the bottom. In a way. <laughs> so the kryptonite for sure with the browns are, are the night crawlers, but the, you hit it right on the head, man. The word is diversity. It, the diversity up in South Park where I guide on the South Platte River, is, it's insane. With, within a one and a half hour window, 200 miles in circumference, we have tailwaters, we have headwaters, we have forks that combine together and merge to make a headwater. We have three stillwaters, 
we have some spring creeks and then furthest west we have the arkansas river being a freestone and i'm thankful every day that i was born and raised in colorado springs because i'm exposed to this fishery and it is it's insane i mean we can have migratory browns in the river and the very next day i could be up on antero or spinney and chasing migratory browns in the Stillwater. And I personally, lately, Matt, that's what's really got my fancy is mixing it up, taking clients that are out for two days and doing the river setting and taking them up and doing the Stillwater and just really maximizing their learning potential and making them a better angler in two days than they were previous, maybe even six months, because you have so much access to different food, different food supplies. And that's what lately has been keeping me on my horse, man. And really getting me excited is that I have to be in my A game. If I miss or slip anything, there's, you know, it could be detrimental for the day, but I definitely, uh, I love the fact that we have that much water to fish and really where we can move through. And it's taught me something. The other thing that's key is I'm still a student. I never go into any day thinking I know everything. If a client has bugs, bring them. If the client has techniques, let's see them. Let's do every discipline in one day, dries, nymphs, and streamers, and let's see what we can design together what we can put together and, and hopefully bring more success to our day and it's unbelievable how much information i've learned from clients in return being able to do the same for them yeah you 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 have such a great positive attitude about this unlike the guy that from montana that i guided i, I mean i did a podcast with yesterday kelly you know he's a great guy but he has he's sort of set in his ways when he looks at fly boxes <laughs> so i when i started out uh 27 years ago i was um I was very headstrong hotelier guy that was like, show me your fly boxes. And, and, and somebody would show me their fly box. And I said, get that crap out of here. And, you know, <laughs> get out of my boat. Don't disgrace the fish. And are you out of your mind? And how long have you been tying? Like one day. And, right. you know, back then when you, you knew you everything, but I think when you get older, your you age just wears you out and you, you're just like, I just want to get the day over so I could have a couple burgers <laughs> and write something. But uh, now I'm like, sure, man, try it. Let's do it. It's great. Let's do it. Boxes, and I'm like, dude, I am never going to say no again ever to anybody because yeah. I've gotten my ass kicked by fish that I thought I – because, you know, we're so anal oh, as guys. So we have our little skinny box that we go to. We know that we're going to catch a fish on it. And we know they're – no, you got to try oh. this. No, really try this. And then they catch a fish. But then there's days we're not taking our fly patterns. And then this guy puts on some absolutely crazy yeah. crap that he tied somewhere in some distant, you know, Zambezi land. And he catches a <laughs> crowd that you've been stalking for 10 days. And you're like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah, what the know, hell just happened? <laughs> this, these are these humbling guide moments that, yeah, oh, the true. guide, the Mr. Guide knows everything. His guy's no. not working. The great yeah. so-and-so's guide's not working. And that's why we just get broken down. By yeah, by brown trout minds are just so whacked out, and I, you know, I think Jay was very frustrated with me putting all these anthropomorphisms on the fish, and he always lectured me, "You're putting way too much into the, these." <laughs> they, they have nate their nat natural natural instinct they're instinctive they do things because it's the way they are they're, they don't have a mind don't put personality qualities to them right um don't don't yep. try to make them into some they're they're a p-shaped brained creature that eats food and has a system it's food or it's not food and cut the crap and i think i drove jay absolutely nuts when we were writing selectivity because selectivity oh, yeah. about that fussy mindset you know of the fish yeah um, if, so i you know i like to i like to attribute to big browns uh they're like that little kid in, in grade school 
that that little that little pudgy little kid that sat in the corner and was just hated everybody. You couldn't <laughs> talk to him. He was miserable all the time. He yeah. would, would snap at you. He'd steal your your uh, tater tots out of your pocket, like in, uh, in uh, what's his name, Napoleon Dynamite. He was like that really bully type kid. Yeah. Attack you when you least expect it, and just take a bite out of you. That's and, and never satisfied with anything the teacher did. That's the way I look at Brown Trout. How do you look at Big Brown Trout? I mean, when you look him in the eye, what do you see, and how do you, being a Buddha, how do you go in there? What What's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great reference. I love that story. It's true to me. Brown Trout are the guy that cuts in line in front of you, and everybody saw him do it. And he just kind of looks back and gives you that look, like the brown look at your fly. And he's, I'm not going to say anything. I just did that. And you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> That's what they are to me. I'm like, this, this fish sucks. This fish sucks and it hates me. It's never going to feed. I think they're, it's all about attitude. You know, browns, are, they swim like they own where they are. Like they're the rule of the roost. They eat whatever the hell they want. And just like you said, when you think you haven't figured out, the next day they won't touch it. And then the moments when they do get on the feed, it's, it's without a care or thought in the world. They just eat everything in front of them. It's incredible, but that's definitely the brown trout. Brown trout have a purpose and whether you like it or not, you can kick rocks. They don't care. They're going to do it and they have their own way. So you have to, you have to try to navigate around them. The one thing about Browns, the only thing I can predict about a brown trout, a lot of the times when I'm thinking, man, this looks fishy. This looks like brown trout water. I can almost guarantee that is brown trout water. Like they're there. Whether you see them or you don't, there's a good chance those fish are there. And, and I would say for most of the trout that we hunt up here, when you're looking in the water and you don't get a reaction, that's the key. You know, the other secret I was going to share with you, what I started doing the last five years, is I started trying to get the trout's attention without even worrying as much about hooking or catching the fish. Like, I just want to see if they're there. A big streamer, a big fly, a big nymph, a big dry fly. And even if the fish doesn't eat it, the fish will come out and look and then go back to where it's holding. And that's just a giveaway. That's a tell. It's like, okay, you're there. I know you're there. Just like Tommy, when he, you know, sets up and preps for his hunts at night, when I spoke to him about that, it's incredible. You know, he does a lot of daytime scouting and nighttime scouting and blends them together. It's genius. I mean, it's, it's the same thing with the tractor flies. I'm just trying to get the trout's attention. Then I'll dissect the water and figure out what to feed them. And in regards to guiding, man, I, the one thing I tell every young guide and even the guides that do trips with me, guiding is the hardest commission-based job on planet Earth yeah. because you're at the whim and the mercy of Mother Nature, brown trout that have attitudes and act like a-holes. I mean, you name it, it's, it's just the way it is. And that's definitely making it challenging more and more with the pressure of anglers the increased popularity, access to these fish. And man, it's just incredible just how much you can be schooled any given day. And that's why I've become fly fishing. I'll put it this way. Guiding and fly fishing me has made me humble. Yeah. Even if I had thoughts where I, like you said, I knew everything before it has humbled me in so many ways because these trout are, they're incredible, but they're also a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's no question about it. And, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, that people don't see that side. You know, 
I, I also think that guiding should be a guide should be criminalized for what they do because they go out there and have a great time and they charge people dollars <laughs> and it's yeah. guaranteed to be paid. It's almost like a terrible weather forecaster that's going to get a paycheck whether he screws up or not. I just think that's that, Colorado. You know, it's like, you know, we are, we should be put in jail for what we do and that we take <laughs> and, and we're at 90% of the time we're thinking about fishing ourselves, but, yeah. Yeah. but then there's the days where you're like constant. It's all you're doing is apologizing all day. I'm sorry for the water. I'm sorry for the fish. I'm sorry for so yeah, yeah, people don't see that side. So we eat a lot of freaking humble pie. What kind yeah. of what are you a stealthy guy? Obviously, I've seen your videos, skinny water, skinny stuff. Are you a really stealthy guy? Do you cast a lot? Do you sight oh, yeah. fish a lot? What do yeah. you do? Are you a stalker? Uh, I've seen all different sides of you. Are you one sure. of those guys that believe in the more you can't catch a fish if your fly's not in the water, or you sit around and stalk and you observe? Um are you a believer in leader shy? Are you a believer in fluorocarbon versus mono? Um, your fly patterns, stark silhouettes. I mean, where where does your karma come in for when you're in the actual stalking mode? Well, how does that yeah. how does that land and come in there? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% stealth. I'm 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 all about being a trout ninja. I treat the ninja mentality all the time, like no way policies hunted stock throughout the course of one day. I mean, I could have a client out on a full day trip and you make within a full day trip, you only make 30 presentations. The ones that count, but the 30 presentations, because we're thinking about, we're mapping out just like a golfer setting up a putt. When we did the video, Jay and I mastering the short game, you know, they're, they're kneeling down, they're lining up the putt. They're looking at the shot. They're reading the green. That is exactly what I believe you need to do before you make a drift. What's your line? Where's the fish? What's the depth? How can I make that presentation? What's crazy lately too, Matt, is I've had, you know, in the rivers, it's a no way policy. You know, you can make 30, 40 casts in one day, land five or six awesome, really big adult fish. And the reason for that is you're not spooking them. You're not flailing water. Then the flip side to that is the next day we go up and hit the still water. And we're trying to hunt the weed lines and the structure points and the edges. And you better have that fly wet or you're not going to catch a fish. Like if you do not have that fly in the water and you don't intercept that moving target, you're not going to catch that target. That's what really blows me away. And I find so fun is that it's, it's kind of a mix of both sides where you're stealth, minimal casting, long bombs in the reservoirs at times, making sure that fly soaks, supplying movement so you can intercept it just like a quarterback making a pass to a wide receiver, you know, they see where the receiver is going to be. That's how you line them up in the Stillwater. And the Stillwater game for me, the reason there's that connection there is because of the saltwater trips I did in my twenties. You know, a lot of anglers believe it's just trout, but I went for broke, man. There were, there were times I came back from Belize and Mexico and these spots and I literally had no money in my pocket. I was eating ramen noodles. I mean, I was waiting praying to God that Ed would give me a full day trip so I could make some money and then get back after it. And, and then I eventually, my buddy Matt was kind enough to give me a, uh, a winter job as a commercial painter. I did that the, for four years and subsidized some of the income in the, uh, the winter season. But it really, it really stems from that. You know, the saltwater taught me how to make a long cast. I also went every Saturday for an entire year with Dusty Sprague, who was the general manager at Colorado Fishing Adventures to Doherty High School. And he dissected the casting stroke every Saturday or close to every Saturday for a year. And then lo and behold, my one of my 
you know, passions for the sport was learning and teaching. And one of my icons I used to look at is Doug Swisher. Well, Randy Swisher tested me with the Federation of Fly Fishers to become certified. And that really, I think the distance casting and saltwater learning how to fight fish helped me bring that over to the brown trout country. And it really is, you know, the the convex bend, the butt section, the power in the rod, or being able to shoot to a target in still water or being able to make that cast on the river with the dry, that all really did blend together. And that's that's kind of the focal point for me is just stalking, hunting, and then making sure that every presentation counts. That's beautiful. That is, that's so cool. Yeah, I, I, the video you did with Jay was really awesome. I really love that. Yeah, the, the thinking man um, angler today is what makes our sports so cool. And I think uh, it's just the difference of just rigging up a fly rod and getting out there. It's, it's the whole approach, the stalking, everything you do. I noticed you guys do a lot of brassies and beadhead, paradon nymphs. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the box of Pat Dorsey on Instagram, you know, there's, it's like I, I, I just cringe because my boxes are so despicable and they're yeah. so disorganized <laughs> boxes and, and, and I'm such an anal expulsive person. I'm, I'm too busy smashing through a box and putting it away and going to another one where his yeah. is so perfect. Um, are you a Euro guy or are you an indicator guy? Are you an old fashioned sight nipping in the English style? Like I had a piece, I have a piece in the magazine called chasing Sawyer's pheasant tail. And I had, several really cool guys in it. Lance Egan, I had Josh Miller, um, the last, the spring issue, I had Terry Lawton, who is the traditional Sawyer English chalk stream sight fishing with this Sawyer induced take that I used to do a lot on the Pennsylvania limestone streams. Um, yeah. What kind of, what kind of nymphing guy are you? If you had to sum up, you know, Landon as the nympher, what, what, what is, what, what's your gig there? Yeah, that's a great question. That's, that's awesome. I gotta, I gotta read that piece. The, for me, it's tension. So I'm a tension drifter. I tension being swinging flies, tension being a dead drift with the second half is a swing, but a majority of the time I'm drifting and allowing the current to supply the food or the fly to the trout. And the one thing I don't believe in is drag free drift. Everything subsurface and even on the surface has movement so I'm a huge fan of movement. And anytime I can keep that connection to my fly, whether it's a twitch or a mend, something where it's going to allow me a better chance for the trout to see the movement like the natural food supply. The other thing is I'm huge into accuracy. So I'd rather think short than think long. And if you have tension to your flies and you overshoot the target, you can always manipulate and adjust and bring it in. But that swinging mentality for me is incredible how many reactions and how many reaction strikes you get. Even dry flies, I started skating and swinging dry flies to the point where half the fly is, you know, or half the rig, one flies on the surface, one flies below, or even doing it in the film, it's incredible how many fish are willing to, to come over and take that fly when there's movement. So I would say that a majority of what I do is tension. And then next to that, I'm also a huge believer recently and you'll see it in in some of the projects and books coming out is i'm a big dry dropper guy now so i would say 60 percent, maybe even a little bit more 60 percent or more of the trout that i'm getting my clients into large trout river and still waters and my home waters here in colorado and even abroad we did a lot of this when i was in south america too in some of the locations is just the dry dropper because trout when they see it's up at a 45 degree angle so I believe that trout are more accustomed to and it's more natural to lift 
than it is to stay plain or same profile or drop. So that being said, it's incredible how many of these trout are willing to come up and look at the dry. And then when they see that mini leech jig or the radiant jig or the damsel below, I'm intercepting the fish when they come up and it's, oh my gosh, that's this fire underneath my skin, man. It's got me so excited. <laughs> that's wonderful. That is amazing. Um, so we're going to go to another break here. Um, I just want to invite everybody to uh, Hollowed Waters Journal. Um, we are the passion for trout, salmon, steelhead, uh, as it was meant to be. Uh, come to www.hollowedwaters.com. We also produce ebb and flow blogs that we've been just did one on uh, terrestrials, tea time, and we did one on trichos. So this is my favorite time of year, August, September. We got terrestrials, we got trichos, trichos in the morning. So there's so much going on right now. It's not just the spring hatch game and stuff. Um, so we invite you to come there. But we're going to take a little break, and we're with Landon Meyer, and we're talking hunting big trout, and we will be back. Hey listeners, if you really like to read, uh, I, I highly encourage you to go to hollowedwaters.com to our new magazine, the magazine and journal for the passion and journey of trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. But if you really like to read good novels and juicy stuff, maybe murder mysteries, uh, and if you like trout fishing as much as I do, I've got the book for you. It's called The Great Drake, and it's by a great friend and highly acclaimed author, Charles Cutter. Book take place on the Asabo, Michigan's most famous trout stream during the hex hatch, Michigan's most famous hatch. Some of you hex maniacs out there who fished it know how passionate and dark it can be, just like Charlie's novel. Quinn Shepard was the best guide on the legendary Asabo River until he found it at the bottom of the river with an anchor chain of his boat wrapped around his ankle. Lizzie, his wife, is devastated and left alone to raise the six-year-old son. His drowning was ruled an accidental by the local sheriff, but a year later, new evidence is found and Lizzie is arrested for murder. Burr Lafayette, I love this guy, recently divorced and deposed head of a major Detroit law firm, is recruited to defend Lizzie, a man at loose ends. He's a brilliant litigator, but prefers sailboats and dogs, Chardonnays over courtrooms and clients. All the evidence points to Lizzie as I first thought, but Burr doesn't believe she killed her husband. Uh, my friends at Trout Land Limited magazine said the writing is crisp, the plot compelling, the action worthy of turning pages, and all the references to fishing the holy waters in Michigan are absolutely spot on. If you want to buy this beautiful book, go to Gray Drake um, on Amazon, and it's available in paperback, hard copy, and Kindle, and at your local bookstores. Once again, it's Gray Drake Murder Mystery. It'll keep you chilled while you're fishing the nighttime for the beautiful trout on the Asabo. And we have a email from Megan D from Ketchum, Idaho. We notice your big trout. This is to uh, Landon. Uh, we notice your big trout feed heavily on minutia. 
versus more chunky, dries, and articulated meaty streamers. Mice, nocturnal feeding like East and Midwest. Do you guys night fish out there? I don't see much about that. Landon, take it away. We do. That's a yeah, great question. And a lot of our trout are selected. We have a ton of tailwater influence in the South Platte where these, these larger fish, what they end up doing is they have a favorite where they, you know, whether it be a stonefly or a caddis bite, they have a favorite bug. A PMD is another great killer for, uh, for brown trout in our neck of the woods. But they're also used to eating thousands and thousands of smaller food supplies. And the cool thing about the fish up here, what I have learned in other places being South America, Alaska, East Coast, coming back to my home waters in Colorado, the reason you don't hear about a lot of mouse fishing or mice fishing up here is a lot of people just do not supply that opportunity to the fish. They're not mice fishing. And when you have those, you know, the musketeers on, you got the ears going and you're ready to get after the fish. These fish do react. The challenge here is, you know, during the evening hours, we don't do as much micing in October, November timeframe. A lot of our browns and kokanee are spawning heavily. But leading up to that, the evening bite can be awesome. You can get early, late, late hours in the day. You can do the mouse bite. And just really using opportunities in between hatches. So if you have a shoulder of a hatch before or after, that's when you want to get after the fish where they're not concentrated on the food supply or the time frame every day where they have a schedule and they're looking for that hatch. You want to get them when they're done looking up or after the hatch is gone and they're still looking up. Those are moments when you can be super effective with the mouse bite. So I, I would definitely say the mice are the way to go. And after my last trip to Chile, fishing Navarino Island, fly fishing at the end of the world, we we're pretty close to the Arctic. And I'll never forget coming back from that. I'm like, yeah, I am definitely going to fish more mice because we had fish over there reacting in waters that looked very similar to our home waters here in the South Platte River. And yeah, no matter what the mouse pattern is, it's it's really about timing. And, and to be honest, just trying something different. Some days you go mouse and it's a zero hero event. Some days we go for streamers, it's a zero hero event. Some days you're a hero and the fish crush it. Other days you get zero, but you at least learn from it. And you gave it the effort. So that's what I'm all about. Sweet, sweet. Tell me, um, to, tell me about your hatches in the Rockies. You know, Mayfly, Stonefly, Midge hatches. You have mm -hmm. lots of BWOs, I know, a lot of trichos. Um, yeah. How, what, like, what are your super hatches there as far as mayflies, stoneflies, midges, wet, and what time of year? Yeah, no, for sure. It, it starts out like we have where I'm living at now, Florissant, Colorado. We have the South Platte River. We're high elevation, man. It gets cold. Like, I joke with the kids all the time. It's like the coldest day driving them to school is negative 27. Oh, and we live God. so rural. This <laughs> crazy the school's like yeah whenever we have a snow day we just bring them into the gym we don't let them outside <laughs> so there's no day there's no day off but for us it's you know starts out with midges and betas in the winter because we can have insanely warm temperatures in pueblo on the arkansas river for example elevation four thousand plus right. i'm at almost nine thousand feet so midges betas then we start getting into some of the caddis season which can be phenomenal May, June timeframe, even early April, late April, depending on the year, we start getting in the caddis. We have PMDs, yellow sallies, golden stones, terranarsis. We have a ton of stone flies. And even in our tailwaters, we can have sallies and goldens, which come off in that June, July. And then we transition into more of the PMDs. And then like you were saying earlier, one of our favorites are the trichos. And trichos can start late June, 
all the way through November, believe it or not. If we have crazy warm Indian summers where it's super warm all the way into November, we still get trikes. And then for the reservoirs, you know, we have the Calabatus. Coronamids, of course, start out during the early season. Then we go into Calabatus, Caddis, damselflies, which is one of my personal favorite when they come up and just like orca whales just crush these damsels just below the surface. I love trout, love damsels. Yeah, it's, it's so much fun. But it's, you know, these are the food supplies that a lot of these fish rely on. This year has been very unique. We've had a lot of warm and cooling trends back to back. And for example, the other day, you're looking at female and male trichos. You've got the olive females. And then the very next five minutes, you'll have a betis land on your hand. You're like, man, I got blooming olives. I got trichos. And then a few hours later, you've got caddis. You've got midges buzzing around. The complexity of the hatches here right now are insane. And you really just have to see what the fish are striving for. And I, it's crazy to say this, Matt, but yesterday on my trip on Stillwaters, we were near the inlet to the reservoir. And lo and behold, what blew in and what was hatching? 8.30 in the morning, trichos. All these trichos blowing from the river. They're in the reservoir. They're landing on the water. And I'm watching 24-inch fish literally just completely big gulp mouthfuls of trichos on the surface. <laughs> it's well, are you using 6X or 7X? Are you, are you crazy about tipping? You know, what, what, yeah, what so fluorocarbon there? all day. All day. I love fluorocarbon. I even use fluorocarbon for my dry flies up to 4X. Yeah. So I'm rocking on the Stillwater bite, I'm rocking 4X to mono liters and then, or nylon liters. And I'm walking on the river, I'm doing five, six X fluorocarbon for dries to the mono liter. When I'm nymphing or I'm doing streamers, it's all fluorocarbon all the way through. And my biggest fad lately, which I just love them, are the micro swivels. I'm big into that for the big dries yeah. and for just swinging some of the flies and really keeping those knots and twists out of the liters. But fluorocarbon through and through, and you know what? Fluorocarbon is non-reflectant of light in some respect, but there are days you and I both know where that lands on the water and the fish are like, there's no way in hell I'm eating that. They can totally see the reflecting light or the image of something unnatural. One of my biggest things about fluorocarbon, which I'm a huge fan, it's abrasion resistant. It's just so much stronger than a lot of the other materials on the market that you can play with. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in fluorocarbon. What, 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 uh, Fluorocarbons have you been playing with these days? What are your favorite ones? Yeah, the ones I've been using primarily, and I, I see my clients come through with everything. And, you know, when they want to use their own gears or, or I'm teaching them how to rig and they're rigging their own rods. I'm a SA, scientific anglers guy, through and through. I love SA. Been working with them, Beefus and, and Josh and Joe Wolfis and Courier and all the people on the team there. It's been great. I've, super strong stuff. Trout Hunter is another good one that we've used quite a bit of. Um, you know, that's really come alive in the last two or three years. Umqua and Rio are the other products we see quite a bit of. I do know that Ross did the test, and I think it was one of the magazine articles last year where they tested tough most of the products when it came to fluorocarbon and the breaking strength and what, what was holding true or what really broke true. And I think he said it was SA Trout Hunter and there was another brand from overseas were the top three that were broken true to, you know, true to whatever was on the label, the uh, tippet or the leader packaging. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I love SA stuff. It's awesome. Um, yeah. Doing so amazing. The trout textured stuff is amazing. They're lying. Oh, isn't it crazy? Yeah, my, my client shot that the other day. And I mean, he's six, three, 220 pounds, big, strong young man you know, learning how to saltwater cast the last three or four years. He's all about shooting lasers at 60 feet. And 
he picked up that 10 foot super 10 with that textured MPX amplitude. And it, it was like, Crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's such a beautiful, and I, I've, I really like Cortland's new fluorocarbons. Um, yeah. Brooks. Well, that was, that was uh so it was, it was SA trout hunter, one of the companies overseas in Cortland. Those were the top four that broke true for Ross's Vary test. And Voss I think is another one. Vary Voss is another That's one. what it is. That was the one. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. We are going to take another break and we are going to um, uh, get with Landon Meyer. Uh, by the way, I highly encourage everyone to take a trip to Rocky mountains and spend some time with Landon in one day. You will learn more than most books will. And this guy uh, is top to bottom uh, in depth with everything he's doing and you, and you learn a hell of a lot and people need to do more learning, not just on YouTube and, and social media, but man, it's so important to spend a day with a, with a great mind like Landon and other people. So, uh, so want to put that in there because that's, that's where you get your mentorship today. We don't, you know, I had some great mentors. I had Carl Richards. I had Vince Marinero. I had Ed Shank, guys like that. And, you know, awesome. today we don't have that opportunity. We have the opportunity of social media and YouTube, but, if you could actually get with people that are still living and breathing and moving quick, like Landon does, um, take advantage of it. So in that, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with uh, Landon and uh, Matt Spinsky with Hollywood Waters Journal. Be right back. Thank you. Hey, Hollywood Waters podcast listeners, when you love a product a ton, you drive and fish it hard and to death, like I have fished the Orvis Helios rods since they came out many years ago when Tom Rosenbauer introduced them to me. If you notice in my images, you'll see this rod pictured often. But now the new Blackout Helios is a magnificent step in the micro boutique rod craftsmanship in Vermont, which, by the way, was my very first graphite rod since I was a young boy, which I bought with my hard-earned and saved-up paper-out money. The research and development team at Orbis Rod Shop is always curious and looking for ways to push the envelope of fly rod design to create new advantages for the angler, says Sean Combs, Director of Product Design and Development of Orbis. With He says, with a new... Helios Blackout models, our team developed a new construction technique to take this existing Helios 3 series to the next level with a focus on specific use cases. This is exhibited through their three models that are designed for improved line control on big rivers, quick shots from a skiff, and unheard of nymphing sensitivity without compromising accuracy. These rods are especially handy on big tailwaters and large spring creeks, which I love to fish quite a bit. For more information, go to orvis.com. Visit your local tackle dealer and get all the exciting news that's happening with this beautiful super boutique rod that just came out. from Richard T. from Asheville, North Carolina. And I've never been to Asheville, but man, I heard it's beautiful over there. And everybody, my buddies, Mac Brown and all those cool people down there, they 
They're in a little bit of that beautiful Blue Ridge High down there. But so uh, Richard says uh, to Landon, uh, if you had one vice, are you a minutia dry fly guy, dirty nympher, streamer meathead? Um, what are you? What is your personal gig and love? Are you an observer or do you cast a lot? There's two schools of thought on stalking and hunting. So what do you like to do? Question mark. That's a, that's a great question. It's to me, those, the disciplines you mentioned, dries, nymphs, streamers, and, and how you approach, you know, casting or any of that. It's to me, it comes in fads. And I definitely am a fan of all. Sometimes I'm on a kick where it's a streamer kick for a long time or a dry fly kick or, you know, a nymph kick. And I would say right now it's, it's mainly the dries. And I would say that it's a lot of the subsurface game that's unmatching the hatch. That's what I'm a huge fan of right now. I'm a believer in if there's something out there that the fish is enticed to. For example, we talked just a little bit ago about the mouse game. If fish are up looking at betas and it's the fall, I'm a huge fan of just throwing a mouse in there and let it swing. It's insane how many fish react that way, especially the largest fish in the bunch, which are usually the most aggressive and the dominant fish. So they're going to hold the prime feeding lies. And when it comes to the nymphs and streamers and dries, one of the things I do every day is you're always double fisted. So yes, sometimes double fisted at the end of the day with two beers, if it's been a tough one, but mainly double fisted where I've got two disciplines at the ready. So whether we're in the still water or you're in the river setting, if let's say we go up on a run and we try the dries, the fish don't lift, boom, we switch subsurface. And then at the end of the day, if we found some water where there's just been some awesome fish and the light's a little bit lower, we'll come back and do bat up cleanup, you know, just like the fourth hitter in the game. We'll come through with the streamer and see if we can move that fish. So I'm a huge believer in supplying all disciplines, if not all, at least two in the course of one day. And then that makes a huge difference. And it starts there, top, subsurface, mid-column. And then down on the bottom with streamers, if you match those three different approaches, man, it's huge. Yeah. What, you know, you do a lot of lake fishing and I don't think we talk enough about lake fishing and you mentioned mm -hmm. you got to have your fly wet. It's got to be in the water. You have to intercept these fish. Mm -hmm. uh, if you added just a couple, two, three, four things to talk about lake fishing skinny and what, what, what are, what are some of the biggest downfalls? What are some of the biggest things that you need to pay attention to? to be successful yeah. in stalking lakes for trout, what are they? Oh, that's huge. Yeah, great question. So it's don't let them intimidate you, first of all. And here's the craziest thing. I would venture to say that a majority of the large trout that you'll encounter from a fly or a fly angler's perspective is going to be these fish that are in water that's 10 feet or less or water where they're 20 feet off the bank. It's unbelievable. The largest fish, Great Lakes, still waters, reservoirs, ponds, high altitude lakes. It doesn't matter. These fish love to eat on the edge because what they're looking for, the three things I encourage anglers to do is vegetation lines for structure or vegetation structure, rocks, log jams, intercepting points where you can intercept fish when they have to cruise in and out of a bay or feeding flat and the drop lines, wherever you can find a drop line. And the coolest thing about stillwater angling is there is no forgiveness. There's no margin for error. If something goes wrong, there's a chance you'll lose the fish or you'll lose that shot. And this is what I mean. In a river, the current is encouraging many things and helping you whether you realize it or not. It's helping you supply a drift. It's helping you fight a fish with adding tension and power on the fish. It's helping you load the rod to cast. 
In still water settings, that's all your responsibility. So you have to shoot line, you have to manage line. Then when you hook a fish, just like going back to my saltwater days, as I mentioned before, I'll never forget when I hooked a tarpon in Homosassa in five seconds, the line wrapped around my neck when the line jumped and the fish ran. And I seriously thought it was going to cut my head off. And after that moment, I was like, okay, I'm clearing line the rest of my life. And I understand why people now are barefoot on the boat. Oh, that's right. You can feel the line on your feet. <laughs> so it's not going to wrap around your legs and a 150 pound tarpon pulls you in the salt. But those moments in the salt that I bleed over to the freshwater, it's incredible. Yesterday, the whole emphasis on our trip was our, my anglers ended up losing five fish. Not breaking the fish off, but applying too much power. And we had to go through lifting the rod, not setting. We had to go through feeding line to the first guide, preventing the jump. And then we also had to work on elbows down. And when you're fighting the fish, if it swims back at you just as fast as it swam away, how do you gain line and how do you maximize lifting leverage on the fish? We went over all that. And the most important thing, Matt, which I know you love this too, is there is something about when you hook a fish and it rips into your backing 30 feet. And then unlike a bonefish where it comes back after a big run and it's kind of, and eh, it's going to come in and you'll see it to hand. These fish don't stop, man. Like they rip into your backing, come in, rip out, jump, leap. It's, it's insane. But that really is, I think the difference for still water. So line control, understanding where the fish are, and just remember, too, like the river, a majority of the fish are not always down on the bottom like coronamid season at 20, 25 feet. A lot of these fish are six feet or higher towards the surface. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, I learned so much about Stillwater when I uh, was uh, writing the Brown Trout Nexus book. And uh, I yeah. spent time in Scotland doing locks and uh, yeah. doing lock fishing. And I got to fish some beautiful locks there, like Loch Laven, where our browns came from. And uh, yeah. Structure and lakes are and, and and points. These browns like to set themselves up off points and structure. Yeah. And reading still water and and in, in Scotland, especially with the wind, uh, my guide I had was a great guy, Gramey, and he was saying, watch the watch the wake from the bubble line on the on the the winds are just nonstop in Scotland, just constant. And yeah. you're, you're fishing off these jetties and little piers and inlets, and you're watching those several different bubble lines formed by wakes and he says no that's the wrong bubble line you got to get this bubble line you got to get this bubble line and it was all based on the hydrodynamics of water flowing off points and flowing off underground points and breaks awesome. and structures and yeah. transformed so far in distances so that's a whole art form the europeans are way ahead of us in that whole oh, gig. they're incredible it's they're incredible man. what yeah. they do but anyways um another two on two more questions what what's this mystique about the mysis gig Tell me, is it is it just, you know, first thing people talk about, um, you know, when you say uh, Colorado, oh, that's where the mysis are, the mysis, mysis, mysis. Yeah. I mean, tell me the whole mystique behind the mysis. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, mysis shrimp were, uh, they were, the, the mysis were introduced to a lot of the still waters in Colorado in hopes that they would feed the salmon and other, other fish that were swimming in the still waters. And lo and behold, these awesome protein supplies, big bite-sized snacks were drifting into the rivers below. And long story short is we ended up receiving these trout that were just insane. I mean, and, and one mouse, one mice shrimp could be the equivalent of, you know, 12 insects and they're eating these by the handful. I mean, there's so many of them that are being swept down from the still water. And so we have these giant rainbow trout, giant brown trout. And when I say protein, so much protein at a high volume that it actually changes the pigmentation color 
where the brown trout would literally turn pink. Their entire body would turn pink. That's how many shrimp they were eating. It was, it was just insane. But we have, we have many tailwaters in the state that supply mycelia shrimp, and these trout will feed on them, knowing that it's a main food supply. The cool thing about mycelia, and the thing to remember is that half the time, if not more, you're using that mycelia as an attractor lead fly to get the fish's attention to come over and then eat the trailing match the hatch fly, whether it's a betis, a caddis, whatever it may be. Only when you have a spike in flow do you have every fish in the river system concentrating on mycelia when they're being swept down. Most of the time, the trout will see them, be attracted to them, and eat something below. And these fish are crazy, man. They're, they're just turned into these feeding freaks. They'll come into deep water, and this is so cool when you see this happen. They'll come into deep water where the bottom of these giant pools, one of them is the avalanche hole in the tailor, where an avalanche is swept down, crushed into the river, and made this giant, humongous platform of a pool. And the vegetation on the bottom will be loaded with dead mycelia shrimp. These are not floating shrimp. And in low water years, trout are like, man, you know, they're probably looking down thinking, how in the world are we going to eat these shrimp? So what they do is they'll take a pack of fish will surround the vegetation. One fish will go through on its side, kick up all the shrimp and the dead vegetation, and then like whales coming in to attack, all the other fish come in and eat the floating mycelia shrimp. It's unbelievable how these fish have adapted to eating this food supply. It's crazy. But that's the mystique is that you can have on any one of these rivers, Matt, you can have a and there's private water below the dam where you can't fish it. Sometimes it's 500 yards, sometimes it's 200 yards. And the fish are just sitting there below these release raceways, eating mycelia shrimp in one run their whole life. And we've had on the frying pan, they found a dead floating rainbows, 28 pounds. The one was landed on the tailor that was 24 pounds. And the numerous fish, one brown trout was landed on the blue that was 22 and a half pounds. And these are all giant gluttonous micey shrimp eating pigs <laughs> that, is just, that blows my mind i gotta get out there um it's just so yeah. it's so amazing um tell me about um your new book uh coming out on guideflies uh that you're doing yeah. tell me about this you've uh you said i when i talked to you that you never did a book on uh just pure fly tying and, and guide no. tell me a little yeah. bit about this it sounds so exciting yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm super excited. I, my mentor who I had on the boat a couple of days ago, John Bars, a gentleman who took me under his wing and opened up so many doors and opportunities. I'm forever grateful and, and blessed to have his friendship and mentor and in this great sport. And, and one thing I've learned over the years and I started getting into is fly design, obviously for helping find more success on the water with clients. And the flies that I have with Umqua Feather Merchants now are not flies designed because they look good. These are flies I designed because I needed another tool in the arsenal to catch fish with clients. I needed to be more effective. And when those were picked up by Umqua, I realized, man, guide flies are huge. And what a guide fly to me is this. I'm, I'm a production tire that pays attention to detail. Phil Cameron with Larva Lace was always talking about production tying and synthetics and this and that when I was younger. And I understand what that means now. AK Best tying his daughters through college. When I, when I tie a fly, I want it to be simplistic where there's five, six materials or less, 10 steps or less where you can crank the bug out. And that's what this book emphasizes on its guide flies. So it's 12 of my patterns with Umpqua, eight patterns from other guides that aren't as commercially known, but again, they're easy to tie patterns for tough trout. And if you can crank out a dozen flies the night before, 
it keeps you tied to the water. It keeps you mentally focused and in the game. And that's what I hope this book does. And it has step tie photos. I, I can't believe Jay convinced me, which he's going to owe me a couple drinks after this one. He convinced me to take all the photographs for the step ties during COVID in 2020, which was nuts. 572 images in the studio, my own, my own office, sweating over the lights and just freaking out to make sure it's all correct, which was a great challenge. I'm glad I learned that became a student again. Bless you. Bless you. It's just just ridiculous. But, but in the end, it's guide flies, some great anglers included their information, Phil Torellia, Angus Drummond, Arlo Townsend, Walt Mueller. Um, There's a bunch of great Kevin Davidson. There's some really good bugs in this book. It talks about the history of the fly, how to tie it, the recipe, how to fish it. And here's the kicker, seven illustrations by Dave Hall with measurements included on how to rig the fly. The one thing I found in some tying books that I wish I had more of were how do you rig the fly? Like what's Matt's favorite way to rig for Atlantic salmon or for brown trout or steelhead? And that's one of the things I'm, I'm glad we were able to add and include in the book. And with everything, fingers crossed, some delays with COVID, but everything included there, hopefully the book will be out. The projected date right now is November 1st. Um, I, I love teaching tying demos, all of that great stuff. So I'll hopefully be traveling. I'll be at the fly fishing shows and fly tying symposium in New Jersey in November. And I'm just grateful and thankful, man. A fly time book, I never thought it wasn't something that was in my radar in my 20s. I mean, I was I was with JB and Charlie Craven and these other guys, and they were inventing flies, and I was fishing. But it's I'm thankful that these ideas and thoughts came to mind for the leech patterns and other other imitations that work well. Fantastic, buddy. You are just a true true rock star of the fly fishing world, and and, and it's it's somebody that has passion and in depth and you're one of those guys that uh, just live and breathe the sport so it's just so wonderful to spend time with you are you a foodie do you are you like food are you a foodie i like food i'm i'm you know for me it's uh you know my my sandwiches for lunch is my lunches consist of sandwiches my sandwiches are pretty cool ciabatta bread some good meat some good vegetables and we used to do some barbecues matt which you would appreciate but then we had the fires and they don't allow us to cook anymore in Riverside. But yeah, I, I enjoy food. I enjoy drinks. And for me, the biggest thing about food, which I realized traveling, cause I'm, I'm not the chef like you are, man. I've heard great things about your food, but I've learned in traveling to South America and Alaska and all these places is, you know, it's, it's the community that food brings us all together. I think that's one of the coolest things about a good eats and a good meal, especially after a hard days fishing. So I, I definitely love sitting down for a good meal. Awesome. What, um, I know you're a bourbon guy. What, what do you do outside of fly fishing without for relaxation and enjoyment? Do you hunt elk? Are you a hunter? What, what's your gig when you have to yeah. put the fly rod down and put the fly mentality out, which never yeah. ends 25 hours with, um, <laughs> fire, yeah. what yeah. do you actually do outside of fly fishing? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, right now, the biggest thing for me when I put the rod down is just, I love traveling, the family and myself, the kiddos and Michelle, we've been doing a lot of national parks, a lot of high mountain lakes and hikes where, you know, you're not necessarily fishing, of course, you put the stick down, but lately with my daughter, I've done quite a few 14ers. I work out, you know, four days a week trying to keep my body in tune so I can continue to hopefully do this forever long. I'm, I'm still on earth. And the, I'd say the biggest thing for me, man, is family and kiddos. That's the most important thing. It really does. I'm thankful. My, my proudest moments are, are beyond the sport of on the fly and fly fishing. My proudest moments are, are being a good father and, and husband. So that's really what I try to focus on. 
You are absolutely wonderful, Landon Meyer. We have been with Landon Meyer. Please come to Hollowed Waters podcast and come to Hollowed Waters journal, the fly fishing as it was meant to be, www.hollowedwaters.com. Thank you so much, Landon. Yeah, brother. Appreciation. So honored to have you. Uh, geez, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm already thinking about different fly patterns <laughs> right now. And uh, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come see you, man. We're gonna swing for salmon. And we're gonna hey, thanks for having me, Matt. And, and good job and kudos to you, man. This is great. I'm excited to uh, to tune in and listen and see the other the other podcast, man. You got some true rock stars on board. This is gonna be awesome knowledge. It's people like you that make it, and it's about the heart, soul, and passion. That's what we're about. And that's a, there's a new era coming. And please, listeners, read books. Books are so important. Books yep, today, yeah. I mean, I grew up on them. Landon grew up on everybody. That's the heart and soul and passion. That's going to give you so much more insight into the sport that we love. Thank you very much for listening. This has been another podcast journal and the big brown trout hunters with the master. Uh, be well, be safe, be loving, be kind, be generous, and be you and make it all happen. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.